0: Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of No Finish Line, a podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. And I'm your host, John O'Regan. In this episode, I'm going to talk about my experience when running the Tenzing Hillary Everest Marathon with Mark Pollock. That was as part of my plan to run a marathon or ultra marathon on each of the seven continents. And in doing so, I also wanted to take in as many extremes as possible. And when I heard about the Tenzing Hillary Everest Marathon, it seemed like the perfect choice for the Asian leg of the seven continents, plus, to tick the box for Mountain Marathon. And it also had the highest starting line for any marathon in the world. There was also the added bonus that the race back in 2007 was on the anniversary of the first ascent of Everest by Tenzing, Norgay and Edmund Hillary and the race was named in their honour. That first ascent was on the 29th of May 1953. I took part in this race with Mark Pollock, a blind adventurer, and I'm going to take a step back a little bit to give the background a bit how we came to take this one on as a team. I first met Mark Pollock when he was preparing and training for the Gobi Desert March, a multi-stage race of 250 kilometers in the Gobi Desert using a similar format to the Marathon de sab that I had just recently completed. Now back then these races weren't as well known or popular, so I was one of the local experts and a mutual friend introduced myself to Mark to see if I could give him hand with his preparation and training. We became friends, and soon after he came back from his race, we started doing a little bit of training together. And the following year, we took part in a marathon at the North Pole. Now, I might talk about that in a future episode, I'm going to stay with the Everest Marathon now for the moment. So when we returned from the North Pole Marathon we hardly spoke for almost two years but then when we made contact again it was like it was only yesterday. I got a phone call from Mark in September 2006 after he'd heard me talking on the radio. We chatted and he asked if I could suggest or recommend any events that might suit him and he specified that he did not want anything that involved mountains. That was because he had recently been in New Zealand to take part in the New Zealand coast to coast race and had a few difficulties and ended up being timed out. I made a few suggestions and one of them was the Dead Sea Ultramarathon which has the lowest finishing point for a marathon and that was one that was originally of interest to me but I changed my mind when I heard about the Everest race. So Mark seemed interested in that one as it's mostly run on roads and for the most part it's downhill which back then we didn't know that because we were both relatively new to running we didn't realize that a, a downhill race can actually be quite challenging but it's something you don't forget when you've experienced running for 50 kilometers downhill i then told mark about my own plan to take part in the everest marathon which had the highest starting point for martin and he went from definitely no mountains to thinking how about we do the lowest and the highest races back to back in less than 10 minutes he went from never wanting to set foot in the mountain again to going to the Himalayas and running a marathon from Everest Base Camp. So that's Mark all over. Now it sounded like a good idea, but there were less than three weeks apart, and that didn't allow us a lot of time to train as each race was different and would record a different approach to the training plan as the two events were worlds apart. The Dead Sea Ultra, which started in the Jordanian capital of Amman, was at 900 metres above sea level. And it was more or less a road race that takes you through the Syrian-African Rift Valley and finishes 400 meters below sea level at the Dead Sea. So when you think about it, that's almost 1,300 meters of downhill over 50 kilometers. Now, although it was an ultra, it was at the lower end of the scale with the distance of 50k. So we started to treat this race as a training run in the build-up to Everest. We follow our usual marathon training regime and I'd meet Mark a few times per week in Trinity College and we'd run around the inner perimeter before we would both start work. And at least once a week, I'd meet Mark and we'd run from the city centre to Leakslip, which was a distance of 18 kilometres, and then I'd drive him home. So we trained together as often as possible and Mark would supplement his training with sessions on a treadmill in his local gym. Because the Everest trip would take so long we decided to rush the trip to Jordan and make it as time economical as possible. This meant flying to Jordan after work on a Wednesday evening to arrive in Oman just in time for the pasta party on Thursday evening and then the race on Friday morning. Arriving into Oman we discovered that Mark's bags hadn't arrived. We had a delay with a connecting flight in Oman which meant changing planes, having to go through a security checks twice. so I'm guessing that that's when the bags went missing. This had happened to me before so because of that i always make sure to wear my race shoes when traveling and carry my racing kit as much as possible in my hand luggage and that's what we both did but certain items you can't carry in your luggage including energy gels now you suppose you can carry a certain amount of them but there were a lot of restrictions back then so we decided that anything that was going to be suspect we would leave inside our or checked-in luggage. And there was also the runner's essential tub of Vaseline that Mark had in his bag, and that was in the bag that was missing. We were told that we'd have the bag tomorrow, but because of our tight schedule, we weren't overly confident of it arriving on time. And I think we had just enough to get by. Well, at least we thought we had anyway. The registration for that race started at 5 in the morning, and the race itself started at 7. It was very cold, but we knew how hot it was going to get, so... Rather than wearing warmer clothing, we decided to suffer for the short while before, at the start and just wear a shorts and t shirt. The race then started when mostly downhill on, on a closed road, and as I said earlier, although the downhill sounds easier than running uphill it isn't the downward movement means you are basically breaking on each footstep to prevent yourself from falling and this shock is absorbing your quad in your quads which are the muscle at the front of your legs and after a few miles the effects becomes clear and your legs can feel very very weak and not able to control your descent as much as you needed to as we left the city limits, the sun came up, and although we were running on a road, we were running through a desert, so it got very, very hot. We were running side by side with a loose piece of cord between us, and I called out the kilometre and mile markers as Mark checked our split, so we knew then when we needed to speed it up or slow it down. Our plan was to run close to a four hour marathon pace just to do enough to get by and get the training effect that was going kind to of help us with the next race. We both wore a hydration pack but didn't fill them with water because there was plenty of water stations. But instead we used them to carry a couple of gels and at times we would use them to stick a water bottle from an aid station to the side pocket. And we also carried the swim trunks and the towel for a dip at the Dead Sea at the finish because we weren't as prepared to get a drop bag sent to the end. Working as a team, my stuff was a marks bag and his was in mine, which meant I didn't need to ask him for something or him me. So if I needed my bottle of water, I took it out of Mark's bag. If he needed his bottle of water, he took it in my bag. The same happened with, with gels and that. On the approach to an aid station, I would put my hands out in front and get our supply of water. We'd both take a bit on board if we needed it, and then Mark would place the bottle in my bag, in the pocket at the side of my bag, and I'd do the same with his. Now, the race was going fairly okay, I'd say, until about the... 20 mile mark just after 30k and the course started to level out and we had a few small climbs nothing serious but our legs were starting to feel the effects of all the downhill so i knew by the look on mark's face that he was suffering and i asked how he was feeling probably a stupid question he told me that his legs were sore but me being as sympathetic as ever i kind of thought and said well everybody else's legs are suffering so we just need to get on with it I had thought that he was talking about muscle soreness, the same as what I was feeling, but shortly after finishing, I realised how sore his legs were. He had said nothing since first mentioning the pain, but when we went for a dip in the Dead Sea, he almost passed out with the pain when walking into the water. I still didn't know what was wrong, but it turns out Mark got very bad chafing because of the sweat and friction that was being caused, and we so said we didn't have Vaseline to protect those vital areas and it was a lot of chafing so it was quite severe now the knock-on effect of that was that when we come back or when we finished the race that was something that was going to affect our training from there on in But again, it's just something we had to deal with. So after the race, we were sitting around having a few drinks and enjoying life. And a soldier came up to us. This was one of the highlights of the event. And said that His Royal Highness, the Prince of Jordan, wanted to meet myself and Mark. So off we went to the VIP area and enjoyed a four-course meal. And Mark was presented with an award for his participation. It seems that Mark was the first person with a disability to actually take part in this event. So they made a big deal about it. Then we went home, life returned to normal, and we started to prepare for the next race. We had planned on starting our training straight away, but as I mentioned, Mark's injury was quite severe and that delayed his recovery. So rather than trying to improve our fitness, we concentrated on more technical aspects of our training, which was to be the guiding and communication. Now we knew the Everest leg of our challenge was going to be a tough one and our usual method of side-by-side running wouldn't work because of the nature of the terrain and the narrow busy paths. According to our research, I would need to lead from the front. I spoke to a lot of people who had been in the Everest region trekking to Everest Base Camp and various other places so I got a feel for the area and I knew that we could simulate it to a certain extent by going to places like Glendalough where there were narrow trails, a lot of rocks and something that would help us both simulate as much as possible. So we came up with a system and practiced in the Wicklow Mountains on the rocky zigzag paths beyond the miners village in Glendelock, if you're familiar with that. And during the first session I asked Mark's girlfriend Simon to take a turn at guiding me using this new system so I would have some of the of how it felt and also it gave me an idea of what was expected from a guide i knew simon quite well and the surroundings were very familiar as i'd spent a lot of time in glendalough very very familiar with the place but when i put on the blindfold i could have been anywhere and within a few steps i lost my trust in someone who was a very experienced guide who i knew for quite a while and who i would have trusted so I learned a lot from that session and didn't realise how beneficial it was until we actually started out on our journey to Everest Base Camp. Now as I said, the two events were worlds apart and the ease with which we completed the first race gave us a false sense of security going into the second. When we arrived in Kathmandu, it was an amazing experience and must have been quite overwhelming for Mark. It was noisy, smelly and very, very busy with a constant tooting of horns and shouting. We met by the local media who were waiting for us to appear as they thought it unbelievable that we would attempt such a challenge but to me it was just the A's and leg of my seven continents and for Mark it was a reason to train. When we signed up for the race initially the organisers didn't tell us we couldn't do it but they were more or less telling us why we probably shouldn't and I suppose the more that they were telling us why we shouldn't That in some ways was making it more exciting to us and more of a challenge and that was attracting us even more. So what they were saying was having the opposite effect on us, it made us more want to actually go there. Neither of us thought it was a big deal but that was something that was to change very very quickly when we actually arrived into the mountains. So after a succession of interviews when we arrived and a photo session we were brought to a hotel, the Kathmandu guest house in downtown Tamil and parts of Thamel seemed familiar from Michael Palin's Himalaya, but it was still very different looking at it through the windscreen of a car being driven through the narrow streets with a horn. It was very clammy in the car, and opening the window seemed to make it even hotter, even though it was late in the evening. So we checked in as quickly as possible, and were spoiled from the start with our bags being brought directly to the room, and without wasting any time, we set out to explore the neighbourhood and stock up on water and get something to eat. A few days after arriving at the Kathmandu we departed for Lukla which is a small airport in the mountains and the starting point of a 14 day trek to Everest Base Camp and the start of a race. Now unlike a regular marathon which you've no guarantee of finishing with a race like this there was no guarantee that you'd actually start. As you're making your way towards Everest Base Camp, there are regular checks to see if any members of the expedition are suffering from the effects of altitude or having any sickness or high blood pressure. And if that was the case, was something you couldn't control, you were sent back down to a, a lower altitude. You were just deemed unfit to complete the race. As soon as we left Lukla, we were the backmarkers, and this was how it would be for the next two weeks. We were forced to depart from every scheduled stop and we were the last to arrive into camp that evening. When we started out from Lukla at the beginning, we were hanging around for a while and while porters were sorting out our bags and we had a little bit of time to spare so we had access to some water which was boiled water that was being cooled down. We put that into our hydration packs and because the water was still quite hot, there was still pressure in the bag and that caused... The actual tubes to they didn't burst but they came away at the treads so we had so that's something that we had to pay attention to that we had to make sure that the water itself was cool enough but that delayed us all the stuff got wet in our bags and it was a valuable lesson to learn but not something you want to learn when you're just starting out on the journey and leaving luck like we were the back markers and this was how it would be for the next two weeks. We were the first step to depart and the last to arrive. It was mentally tough and in some ways soul destroying. But my way of dealing with this situation is always to accept it for what it is. Remember that it's only temporary and you gotta get on with it. At the end of the day, it was you that wanted to be there. So after all we were there by choice, no one forced us to go. This was our holiday as such, and in two weeks' time we'd be on our way home and we'd have regrets if we didn't give it our best shot. So we just had to accept it and go normally. On the trek, I led the way and was linked back to Mark with a set of walking poles that joined us at the wrist. Mark had a second set of poles which he used in the traditional way, except rather than using them for support, he was feeling his way and trying to avoid ankle twisting or possible leg breaking obstacles. And as we moved, I would describe the terrain ahead and move, or move the poles that were connecting us to simulate the terrain or gradient raising the poles meant we were going uphill and moving the poles individually up and down in rapid succession would mean that the ground was uneven this was a technique that we practiced in the Wicklow mountains and was our main line of communication so Mark could sense the changes in directional gradient and I could control Mark's speed and knew if he was veering off in the wrong direction the ground was never even And rather than trying to describe the size of rocks and stones underfoot, which were very time consuming, we come up with a system, because it's very hard to say what's a big rock and what's a small rock when they're all different sizes. And as an example of that that would be, if you had a golf ball beside a tennis ball, the golf ball is small. But if you had the golf ball beside a marble, the golf ball is big. And the same as putting the tennis ball beside a football, the tennis ball then becomes that was big is now small and that was the way it is with rocks and boulders you can't just say it's a big rock or a small rock because rocks are all different sizes so we made the comparison with something that we were familiar with maybe use something like grapes for gravel apples for fist size rocks and then grape roots for the next size up and then we had footballs and we were using boulders and steps and we just made it sound as something that you could quickly associate with and it didn't take too much uh, too much working out. Soon enough it started to sound like we were walking through a fruit and veg market but it was something that worked and occasionally I would throw in an avocado or a passion fruit just to break up the monotony and they were the most quirky little things that had us laughing and forgetting about the effort and it helped us along the way. To give feedback then on distance and climbs, I would make comparisons with something, again, that we were familiar with. If we were on a steep climb, and Mark asked how much further, I might say something like, it's about three times the stairs in your house. Or if I couldn't see the top, I might say, with the length of Grafton Street, before I might get a view of the top, and it's as steep as your stairs. I always try to give as much information as possible, and that is because... Of the day I was led blindfolded through the Wicklow Mountains. The day I was blindfolded and led by Simon, I thought I knew exactly the distance I was away from the car, but I was very, very wrong. And I thought I was I was being led beyond the car park and led somewhere totally different. And when I reached the destination, I was exactly where I was told I was, and that I suppose after that day As far as trying to communicate distance, time, the severity of a climb, anything else, I never lied. I was always trying to be as honest as I could rather than trying to trick somebody into doing that little bit more. Now at the end of the first day, we realised that this was going to be an event that would test us. Mark's shoulders were sore from using the walking poles and my throat was sore from the constant talking. We arrived so late into the camp that it didn't allow much time for rest and recovery. And to give an idea of how long it took us, before reaching the camp we met some of our group running towards us on a training run and we still had almost 5 kilometres to go. It was a tough day but easy in comparison to what lay ahead. The following days I called out commands for up to 10 hours and and mark silently followed because he had to listen it was very very hard for us to hold a conversation we traveled separately to the rest of the group because the noise of others talking could mean mark missing a command or a warning and we had a sherpa that followed closely behind ourselves for safety reasons so each step that we took along the route towards the next camp and finally towards our ultimate goal of reaching everest base camp brought us further away from our homes and as bad as we were feeling psychologically it was, it was getting worse. The effects of the altitude, the terrain, the food and the lack of sleep meant that we began each day tired and unrecovered from the previous day but as bad as I was feeling for Mark the days were a bit tougher as his movement required a lot of upper body strength as he had to ensure proper placement with his trekking poles on the uneven ground when negotiating boulders on the constant ascents and descents so by the end of each day his shoulders were hurting more than his legs as well as that we couldn't have a normal conversation because any lapse in concentration could result in a twisted ankle or worse still, a trip over the edge. Jumping forward a few days and on arrival into Namche Bazaar, I was shattered but didn't want to show any signs of weakness so I suggested to Mark that we should have some own time and this is another example of how our system has evolved in the field and out of necessity. Mark hung out in the lodge with some of the other competitors and I had some quiet time to myself. We were both feeling the effects of the altitude but in different ways. Mark had a bad headache and I had an irregular heartbeat and was finding it hard to breathe. It was actually so irregular that it was starting to scare me. And I was thinking that there was a chance that I might not make it to Everest Base Camp. And that was something that I kept to myself because I didn't want to be the cause of the race not happening for us especially when we had been so been through so much but I later learned from talking to other guys that a lot of them were feeling the same way and again nobody wanted to share how they were feeling so in some ways I think it's it's best that you acknowledge when you're going through times like that and you will find that talking to somebody else you'll actually get some I suppose solace from that and it then prepares you then for what lies ahead Now Namshe Bazaar would be the finishing point of the marathon and between here and Everest Base Camp we we began covering the marathon course backwards, retracing the steps of Tenzig Norgay and Edmund Hillary on their successful expedition back in 1953. We spent two days in Namshe acclimatising and during this time we got an opportunity to train on part of the marathon route. In normal circumstances, this would be ideal, but for us, all it did was give an advance warning of how tough the race was going to be. Beyond Namche, we had at least three more days of trekking, and even though we were starting to acclimatise, the days just got tougher and tougher. I can't recall any sections that were level enough to give me a break from talking, as I constantly had to relay information of what lay ahead back to Mark, and for Mark, there was just no let up. It seemed like a never-ending series of stone steps and if they weren't going up they were going down and I can only imagine what it must have been like for the Everest climbers having to deal with this after two months in the mountains. So to avoid any falls we stayed very close together under the descents with Mark being less than one metre behind. I was using a trail shoe with a new lacing system using a flexible wire lace which was tightened by a wheel at the back of the heel. And because of her closeness, my heel was constantly scraping off the riser at the back of the stone steps. Eventually it gave way, and I'm guessing some grit got into the mechanism, but whatever happened, the mechanism was finished, it just wouldn't work. So my shoe started to fall off, and after a few attempts to repair the brake, I gave up and put on an extra sock to try and tighten the fit. Later that evening, then, in the camp, I shortened the wire and tied a knot with just enough to allow my foot in and out of the shoe and i then broke the prong from a fork. and with my Leatherman tool i formed a figure of eight shape with the prong and made a tourniquet which allowed me to tighten the wire and secure the fit it wasn't ideal but it was better than nothing and needs must and when you're in an extreme location you can't just buy away over a problem so this is when you have to have was the, the experience to know what to do and how to do it? The final leg of the journey then from Gorek Shep into Everest Base Camp was less than 5k, but consisted of glacial moraine. Moraine is basically boulders of different shapes and sizes, and this lined our path like an avalanche off the mountain. Mark was dreading this section since we first heard about it, but I chose to ignore it until it happened rather than worrying about something that i couldn't change and i decided that it was best to just focus on the steps that lay ahead of me on that particular section that i was on at the moment rather than thinking too far ahead so as far as i'm concerned there's no point in worrying about something you can't do anything about and it will be time enough to worry about it on the day no point in getting stressed out over it two days beforehand Some of the boulders were as big as houses and a wrong move or loss of balance would mean sliding into a cavern formed where three or more boulders meet and that's something that we didn't want to happen. The climate season was coming close to an end and base camp was starting to empty and it looked a mess with the remains of previous expeditions and because we were almost last to arrive we were seeing everything that was there so it wasn't the prettiest of places at that time we had a few days in base camp and they felt very very long and cold with nothing to do except sit around or take the same photographs again we were anxious to leave base camp but when our time came i would have been happy enough to stay for a few more days or at least until the sun came up we knew it was going to be a tough race but didn't know how tough like after all we did manage to get there so that meant that we would have a good chance of actually being successful with getting back to Namche, even if it was going to take us twice as long as everyone else Our last morning in base camp started very early and we had to decide quite quickly what we would send back to Namche, as the porters were starting on the descent and wanted to get a head start in the trail. It's a very busy trail and just like back home there's always a few that like to get ahead of the rush here and avoid any traffic jams. It was after sunrise when we got out of the tents but because of our location it would still be a while before the sun climbed over the peaks. So we were still in the shadows of Everest and sitting around in the remains of the camp without any luxuries. We didn't have our down jackets or long, warmer trousers. All that had to be given to the the porters as we were leaving. So we had quite a while sitting around. Well, it seemed like quite a while sitting around trying to keep ourselves warm before the rakes actually started. I can remember Mark was using the stainless steel mug to warm his toes before putting his trekking shoes on. And we delayed putting them on for as long as possible. The race started with a shout rather than a gun for obvious reasons at 7am on the morning of May 29th just as the sun appeared over the mountains. Mark and myself are both very competitive but unlike other races we were now in a different league and for this race we could forget about the other runners as today we were competing against the terrain, the environment, the altitude and anything else the Himalaya controlled us. I watched as the other runners hopped skipped and jumped across the moraine as we settled by default as the back markers one hour and less than two kilometers later just aside ever space camp we stopped to compose ourselves it was frustrating as it was impossible to get into any kind of a rhythm 25 more miles of that maybe if the start had been a little bit easier it would have made such a big difference but the time and effort it took us to cover that first section had us hitting the wall at the start of the race. Our only saving grace was the fact that we both dug deep before and we both knew we could depend on each other. The experience that we had gained from completing an 80 kilometer stage of the Marathon des Sables the Gobi Desert March had prepared us mentally, so we marched on as fast as the terrain allowed with me calling out the commands and Mark listening for the guidance and feeling the way with his trekking poles. Our first checkpoint was at Gorek Shep, the original base camp for Everest expeditions and 5km from the start. Unexpectedly all the water was gone, so we continued onwards and upwards towards Lobuche to yet again another empty checkpoint at 10 K. We were now out of water but luckily enough the trail is so well used that you're never too far from a lodge or a tea house so it's possible to buy water. Heading towards the third checkpoint at 15 k we cross a plateau with memorials dedicated to climbers who had died while climbing in the region and more than likely had died on Everest. So passing through this quaint eerie section we begin a tough descent on steep uneven boulders zigzagging towards Thukla before crossing a narrow bridge and contouring a valley towards the village of Dingbushay. The terrain here was quite even. But it begins to snow and by, ne- by the time we reached Dingbushay we're shivering with the cold. We've been on our feet for 8 hours and have covered less than half the distance. Plus we were in the mountains. There was always a temptation to stop but we know that we must keep going and make a compromise to eventually stop without sitting and the locals look on an amusement as we have a quick snack and then it's onwards towards the next checkpoint which is in the a small village called Perichet. That next section brings us along a narrow path with steep edges falling down into the river valley and and although not technically difficult, it was one of the most dangerous parts of the race for us. Progress was slow as I constantly have to stop and talk Mark through the following movements to ensure there's no mistake because if we had a slip along this section we weren't going to get any second chances, there wasn't a hope. And you got to remember that we're both tired, we're suffering, I suppose, from sleep deprivation. We're hungry, and we want to get off that mountain quickly. So we we want to move quickly, but we know we can't. We we, we have to really plan our movements along this area. Passing through Periche was quite uneventful, except that we reached the halfway point. And we know that soon we'll be counting down into single figures. So that w- that was a psychological milestone to reach, halfway. But it's getting dark, and the worst climbs are still to come. But we knew that we were on the homeward stretch. Once we got over halfway, we knew that we were on our way to the finish. So the next few miles, the terrain was as good as it would get, and we passed through deboshe before climbing steeply upwards through a rhododendron forest, leading to the monastery of Tangouche. We've less than 10 miles to go but it's now getting dark, all the volunteers have gone home and the after-race party in Namche Bazaar is in full swing. To top it all off we've a, we have a severe downhill which zigzags steeply for over a mile followed by a 5 mile climb up to the village of Kumjung. The uphill comes as a welcome relief at that stage as my quads have taken such a beating on the downhill and the two of us are now very very close to our limits on the final approach into nam shea bazaar mark lost consciousness and stumbled over the edge of a steep slope my guiding poles delayed his fall and the sherpa that was allocated to stay with us manages to lunge forward and grabs mark's ankle mark was unaware of what had happened and for the next hour i was shouting back questions to ensure he was still awake just simple stuff like what's your phone number what's your date of birth, what's our distance in kilometers what's the last checkpoint we've come through? where are we heading to and just stuff to kind of keep the brain stimulated and that's something that i have used on occasion in races since then just to i suppose stimulate yourself mentally to keep yourself awake 16 hours later we arrive at the finish line exhausted and joint last and this has to be the toughest thing i've ever done i still say it now that was back in 2007 it's now 2020 and that is the toughest thing I've ever done. We went the Nepal to compete against the other competitors, but ended up competing against the situation that we we're now in. We were competing against the environment and everything it had to throw at us. It became a race for survival and a test of endurance rather than athletic ability, and we won. A lot of people questioned our sanity before we announced this race. And before it was planned, Mark had assured me that he would never set foot on the mountain again. But I think we have proven that if you want to do something and are willing to put the time and effort in, you will succeed. Mark's only concern before entering this race was, is it a cut-off time, as there was in some other races? And that was the only thing that would have stopped Mark, I think, from taking part, if there was a cut-off time that meant that we would have been timed out, rather than being allowed to actually get to the finish line. And for me, I didn't have any real concerns because I knew that we could do it. Even though I was having, I suppose, mixed emotions when we started off from Lukla, I knew from those four, shoe steps that this was going to be quite a challenge. But as I've said before, this is endurance; so you've got to endure it and nothing lasts forever. If you enjoyed this or any of the other podcasts, you might consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>